we've given you six um, overarching governing principles for the book of Psalms as we go through it for the better course of a year. And one of those is that um, the Psalms are prayers to God, which are sung by God's people to God. And so today, rather than uh, reading this on my own to you, would you guys join me in reading Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's people said, amen. Well done. We didn't even practice that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray and ask that you would show your majesty, your goodness, your authority to your people today in a mighty and powerful way that can not be denied. It can't be attributed to a good preacher, a good sermon, um, good music, good music leaders, though they are. But to you alone, Lord, uh, is given the credit, the honor, the dignity of majesty. Put us now, Lord, in the position of meek people, small and humble people who need you and are made happy when we see and are near your majesty. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. So we're continuing our walk through the book of Psalms. Um, the entire book of Psalms is called the Psalter. And we did Psalm 1, 2, and then last week we, we looked through uh, Psalm chapter 4. Now, I, I mentioned six governing principles that we have been repeating through each sermon. We've put them up on social media for you. We're going to return to those uh, in many, if not most, weeks. But today, I, I just want to direct your attention to that, or you can go listen to our sermons on Spotify if you want to review those. Uh, our, my, my sermon manuscripts uh, are being put up online as well for your weekly study through Psalms, so you, not, so you can see how to do it right. I'm, I'm trying to do it right. In, in preaching, but my, my hope is that it would be a helpful model to you in, in how I'm approaching the Psalms. I want to help you read the Bible um, so you can read it for yourself as well. I want to start today's Psalm, Psalm 8, by telling you that there's a major progression from Psalm 1 and 2 through Psalm 3 through 7 and into this Psalm today, Psalm 8. Theologians uh, believe that these psalms, one through eight, are meant to be read as a body. They're meant to be read sequentially in the order that they're given in the Bible. It, it takes us from this blessed and righteous man in Psalm 1 and his authority and God's approval in Psalm 2, and it takes us directly into lament, attack, dissatisfaction, fear, and pain in Psalms 3 through 7. Just go read through those on your own. We, we looked at Psalm 4, 4 last week. That This guy's in trouble surrounded by enemies, surrounded by and in the midst of discontent, even in his own heart. 
There's a lot of lament in Psalms 3 through 7. And God's people have, there's a place for God's people in lament. We're going to steer clear of uh, perhaps modern, many modern American kind of Christian, just uh, chipper Christianity where you are too blessed to be stressed, that everything's okay, that nothing's all that bad, that you're making it, you're naming and claiming it, uh, and I'm just going to decide to have a good day because, right? It's, it's the place of Christianity in which human beings can rightly lament because we take it to the one who listens and cares. In Psalm 3, the psalmist says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Psalm 4, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Psalm 5, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Psalm 6, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. My bones are troubled. Psalm 7, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, or else, like a lion, they will tear my soul apart. For Psalm chapter 8, here's the big idea today. Here's here's the big idea. I want you to repeat this with me and and have this. You're going to drive home, hopefully humming, how marvelous, how, right? This is the the part, this is the sermon part that I really want you to take with you and, 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 and remind yourself of as you go home today. It's this, that God shows his majesty and he works his might through those who are meek. It's that God shows his majesty and he works his might through those who are meek. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens. I'll I'll tell you, in, in uh, up underneath this big idea that God shows his majesty and he works his might through those who are meek. I'll tell you the truth, that you only really see the majesty of God when you stop. This word, selah. This Hebrew word, which we're not entirely sure of the original definition, but we do know from the context, when we see it in the Psalms, God's people, when they pray, sung these and they saw this word Selah, they were supposed to stop, to pause, to meditate, to reflect. Even in the midst of worship service, which is holy and good and wonderful, they were meant to, for a second, shut it all out. And, and for the Lord, as a body, and for me individually, just to, to be in the presence of God and to hold our tongues even, to hold the tongues of our minds and heart. <coughs> you, only, you can really only see the majesty of God when you... Selah. See, in, every, in Psalm chapter 8, everything from 3 through 7 changes. 3 through 7 is attack, dissatisfaction, lament, fear, and pain. And the psalmist has been praying. Each of those psalms, these are prayers. In fact, Psalm 7 ends on a strong note. Maybe not a high note. I think a high note, but a strong note. This is the psalmist believing to believe, trying to believe, trying to trust in God. And he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. In, in the midst of lament and cries for help, the psalmist turns his eyes from his enemies to the God to whom he's praying. And that's a difficulty for us. If we do not say life, we do not stop. 
We'll keep our eyes on our enemies. Our eyes will be on our sin. Our eyes will be on our failure. Our eyes will be on the sin of others against us. Our, our eyes will be on the dissatisfaction or the trouble and the trial we're facing. And unless we say la, unless we stop, unless we pause and go to the Lord, then our eyes won't be on Jesus. They'll be on, on the things that are troubling us. That's exactly where Satan would want us. Exactly where he wants our eyes. It's on our problems on these things. Psalm 8 is the result of Selah-ing, if I can verb that word. It gets him to see the Lord in a special way, a way that he wouldn't have seen God if he hadn't gone to the Lord in trust with his pain and suffering. I, I need you to get this. For you to go in desperation to God daily for a season over and over, not feeling like you're getting anywhere, you're worshiping God. He receives that with satisfaction because you're not going to anybody else. He's showing Satan. He's showing you. He's showing the angels. He's showing the world. He's showing all the universe. They belong to me. How do you know? They are in desperation and I'm the one they run to. Glory to me. That's, that's how God receives this. And this, this psalmist, this man, he sees the Lord in a new, in a new way, in a renewed way. Because he's already seen them in Psalm 1 and 2 this way and now it's renewed. But here's, here's the deal. This, this psalmist's posture, he's meek. He's childlike. He looks to God like a father in heaven. And he's finally ready to kind of see and hear what he needed to see and hear in Psalms 3 through 7. And the Lord is appointed here and this time to reveal it. Now he can see God's majesty. And it, and it blows his mind. It gives him hope and courage to face the enemies and trials, which by the way, in Psalm ch chapter 8, by the end of Psalm 8, they're still there. The enemies are still there. He's surrounded. His difficulties, his own sin, sin of others, his embarrassment, the things that bring him shame and embarrassment, they're all still there. That doesn't, he hasn't deleted or erased those things. But now he can face those things with the blessed righteous man of Psalm number 1 and 2 as his Lord who's with him. And he'll go with this one because he can see his majesty. He's the only one worth going into these things with. He's struck by God's majesty. That word majesty, I don't want to run over it too, too quickly or, or flippantly. This is God's ruling. It's his reigning. It's his sovereignty. It's God's exercise of power over his creation. His might. Majesty and glory aren't the same thing, but they have a relationship. And Majesty has to do with God's strength and authority. Kings and queens are called your majesty. We, we refer, and, and when, when the queen or king comes in a room, everyone's supposed to what? Stop. Stand. In the old days, we're supposed to bow. We don't like bowing that much these days. So it, you know, we stand, but we stop. We pause in recognition of their sovereignty, their greatness, their dignity, their power, their authority. And this majesty of God's, it's it's a big neon sign pointing to glory. That's the relationship between majesty and God's glory. God shows his majesty. He demonstrates his majesty as a neon sign pointing to his glory. And, and we've been covering a lot lately. What is the human relationship between glory and our joy? You want joy and you're designed for it. You're, you're supposed to look and search and hunt and do anything you can to find and complete and fulfill your joy. You want that? You find glory and you get close to it. You abide in it. You, you live next to it. Don't leave it. You find glory. 
Majesty is to be bowed down to. We're meant to slow down, to pause, to stop. And our, our problem, perhaps in our modern time, I don't know about ancient times because I wasn't there, is that we go too fast in this life. We go too fast. We go so fast. So much stimulus, so many things to do. In fact, many Christians will even equate righteousness with busyness. How are you doing, brother? Oh, I'm just so busy. Busy. I'm keeping it at it. I'm being diligent. What, keep at it. Be diligent. Work, right? Don't be lazy. But we, we move through this life so fast, and we move too fast, processing too much pain, too much worry, too much responsibility, too much sin, too much failure, never slowing down. Even if we are praying, never slowing down to think and remember the nature and the quality of the one I'm praying to. You can pray without pausing. It, it, it's possible to pray without pausing. Sometimes you can't stop what you're doing. And it's okay. Keep doing what you're doing and you pray as you do it. I've been an advocate urging us all, encouraging us all to do that. To not believe that the only way God will hear you is if you assume the proper righteous angelic like antenna bodily you know, position so then God can hear your prayer. Right? But here's... Every, every good and light thing also has its shadow. This praying without pausing, this, this often can be the experience of those who, who, whose primary or only prayer in their day is in the car on the way to work or in bed right before they go to sleep. This problem is you're on your way to doing something else as you pray. You're doing something else and you're on, a, on your way to doing the next thing as you pray. And there's no stoppage. Well, I'm, I'm praying in bed. I'm laying there. I, I, I've done that. Most of those prayers don't end with amen. They end with, oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Lord. Uh, um, yeah, so any, right? And, and there's something to be said about being so familiar and so peaceful at rest with your Father in heaven that you can fall asleep in his lap, right, metaphorically? And nevertheless, there's not necessarily a selah. And I'm not criticizing those of you who pray a lot in your car or pray before bed. You keep doing that. But here's what I'm telling you. The Selah is a purposeful pausing of everything else in order to get the fullness and be in the presence of God's majesty. And I'm going to just have you tell yourself and the Lord, the Holy Spirit in your own heart, whether or not you're actually experiencing regularly the majesty of God as you pray in traffic and as you pray in bed falling asleep. It's not just about pausing, though. It's not just pausing that does the thing here. That, that's, that's where it's got to start. But here's the deal. It's not just about what you do. The key here is not what you do. It never is. The key here is more about who God is and who you are. What you find and learn when the majesty of God is revealed to you and you see what kind of person he is and what kind of person you are. It's the meek who see and enjoy God's majesty. It's the meek who see and then enjoy like they find all, they find reverence, they find happiness, they find security, hope, soul rest, peace. Verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. Distill the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist, listen, the psalmist doesn't use the word meek here, but, but that's the attitude and posture that he has is meekness, all right? Here's what meekness is. It's, it's when driven by a humbled understanding 
of your true position in the world, a, a meek person restrains the pride, frustration, and the power of their anger. They restrain their power specifically through because of their anger. Faced eye to eye with God's majesty, with his glory, with his power, his authority, his sovereignty, we realize just how little power and authority and, and righteousness that we have. Can't control a single hair that falls out of my head. Can't stop the skin from getting softer and less supple and more wrinkly. Can't stop the, the, the degression, that's the word, of my body that now when I sleep I hurt myself. The fatigue I have just from thinking. And when you read Psalm 3 through 7, the psalmist's enemies, they, his troubles, they, they do need defeated. They absolutely do need defeated. The, the enemies need their teeth crushed. They need their faces smashed in. And their arrogant attitudes, they need to be put in their place. Someone does need to do it. There's injustice here. And you and I, listen, I want to, let's tell the truth. You and I do have power. We have, we have power. We might call it fleshly power, worldly power, but we have human power. We have power to attack other people with our words. We have the power to tear them down, either to their face or behind their back. We have the power to give them a piece of our mind. We have the power to take them to the court of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and wake everyone else up to how evil and scummy this guy is or they are, right? But that's not the, that's not the power of God. And I want, you, I want us to understand something. Meekness isn't weakness. I couldn't not say that. It rhymes. It's so pastorly, right? <laughs> Meek ain't weak, yo. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is actually the ability to exert power with humility, to use power with temperance, with wise discipline, with patience and mercy, to know what the standard of good and right and wrong and justice and righteousness is and to judge accordingly, but to judge with the mercy of God, to apply mercy to those who are in the wrong. Meekness means knowing exactly how far to go and going no further. It means you not only restrain, but it also means you refrain. You, you withhold yourself from vengeance on those possibly who deserve it. You see what the psalmist says that God does with babies and infants, the meek? He says they shouldn't... Well, first of all, it says that he's established his strength and he's doing it out of the mouth of babies and infants. He's using his strength. He's wielding his might through babies and infants. Now, babies don't satisfy the definition of meek, do they? They don't have any power. They're, they're babies, right? Each of you could have a baby. And like Pokemon, you could send them toward me to fight me. And I could have the flu and still kick their rear ends, okay? That's a really disturbing image. But babies have no weakness. Like they, they have, they're weakness. They have no power, Right? That's so why we say, like, snatching candy from a baby. I'm going to email from our leaders about that. <laughs> but I was due. It's been a few weeks. Babies don't have power to restrain, do they? But out of the mouth of babies and infants, God does something. He shows his might. 
First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. I'll just summarize it. In First Corinthians chapter 1, God says that he's chosen what the world calls weak and foolish to put to shame the wise of the world and the strong of the world. He's chosen the weak, those with no power. When Jesus enters Jerusalem at the end of each of the Gospels, he enters into Jerusalem. He enters into the very den of his enemies. It's his city, but it's occupied by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans. All three groups who hate each other, but all hate him more, and they are out to kill him. The first chance they can get. And do you know who Jesus uses, what he uses to paralyze the hand of his enemies so they can't kill him until the end of the week, his appointed time for his crucifixion? Because if they had their own way, they'd, they'd kill him at the gates. He comes into the city and there are people singing and worshiping him. Cries of hallelujah, cries of hosanna. God save us and here's our Messiah. And they're pointing at him. In fact, in Matthew 21, 16, the religious leaders who would love to murder him right now, they would love to take him and stone him to death right this second. They come up and go, hey, do you hear what these people are saying? Do you hear what they're singing? They're calling you Messiah. They're calling you God. You need to shut them up. And, and Jesus says to them, yeah. Have you never read? Which, by the way, is an outrageously just sassy thing to say to Pharisees who have memorized the whole Bible. Have you never read? And he quotes this psalm. He goes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The might, the might that overcomes and holds back Jesus's enemies is the singing and the praise of Jesus through a crowd composed primarily of women, children, and poor people, and sick people, and crippled people. A crowd primarily made up of the weak, those who have no power. And they have no power, and in their singing, they see, they believe in the majesty of Jesus, at least in this moment, and they sing it, and they make it known, his name is on their lips, and Worldly might and worldly wisdom is put to shame. They can't do what they want to do. The God-man Jesus Christ, he shrouds his majesty and humility on a donkey, and he makes his power and might known to his enemies. He paralyzes them from the mouth of the weak. The weak who have no power, they become the mighty, not through any majesty or might of their own. They become the mighty meekness of Jesus when they see their Lord and they take his names on their lips. Now, here's the problem. We don't want to be meek. We really don't want to be meek. We don't want to be weak, and we certainly don't want to look weak and meek people look weak. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to point out meekness isn't weakness. It looks and feels like weakness, and while every, especially in the face of, of everyone else around us, seeming so cool, so strong, so included, so prosperous, getting all the wine and grain from Psalm 4, getting all the wine and grain that I don't have, and I think I'm not getting that stuff, and I'm not cool like them, and they're not, I'm not included like them, and I'm not prospering like them, because I guess I'm trying to obey the Lord, and it's resulting in me not being awesome. I, I don't even want to be awesome. I just like, want to be cooler, at least some. I want to be a bit stronger. And we're tired of being the nerd the geek. We're tired of being the chumps, the losers. We're tired of those who are being taken advantage of. And we're tired of being looked at and seen this way. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. 
But I want to ask, like, if, if we just go ahead and depart from Jesus and his might and his majesty and go ahead and fight fire with fire, what does that get you? What does that get you? Where does that get you? Where does it take you? At, at best, you become like everyone else. And the Bible says the treasures they have, moth, rust, fire, the thief can get to it. The coolness, the approval, the career, the material wealth, the inclusion, the prosperity. At best, it just, it just gets you what they have. And it's nothing. At best, you become like your enemies. You become like the enemies of God. And now you're like an enemy of God. Are you happier? Are you more content? Are you more at peace? Are you more joyful? When you leave off from, and you don't, it's not, I'm not interested. It doesn't seem all that effective. It doesn't seem that, to be that productive to stop pause and go and hunt for in my mind, heart, the Bible, the, in prayer over the world, like to find the majesty of God. Just, I'm not, it's not getting me anywhere. I got to hustle. I got to do some stuff. Don't worry, Jesus. I'll get to you in the car. I'll get to you tonight before I go to sleep. Because this psalmist, this psalmist, he's, he doesn't find more contentment, peace, and joy by trying to be mighty and awesome like his enemies or like the world in order to overcome his problems. He embraces, he embraces his small and humble, marginalized position. And when he's in that spot, in his mind and his heart and his soul, then he sees the mighty and majestic position his God is in. He's the one who can and who does do something about these enemies in your pain and your trial and your suffering. Look at verse three. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. If you made earth the size of a, of a golf ball, you could put it in downtown Macon and the moon would be in Hampton. And the sun would be like, I don't know, Chattanooga, something like that. And that's just our little solar system. And the universe, we got like mega, 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 mega billion dollars, or maybe hundreds and hundreds and lots of your tax dollars going into amazing, and I love it, telescopes that are up there and they can see further into the universe than we've ever seen before. And they're still seeing stuff. We haven't gotten to the end of it. Just laying eyes on it. And that's the macroverse. What about the microverse? Being able to get down to the Planck scale. Just Google that, P-L-A-N-C-K, all right? And I look, I see like the majesty, the authority, the power, the might of you, that you just, you did that with your finger. You, you speak universes into you. Yeah, I think I'll make a universe. Universe, plow! That's him. I'm not even joking. He then says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. He's asking, like God, in comparison to you, you create universe, universes simply by speaking them. What can... What could possibly be so special about me, a finite, frail, foolish, failing, and fallen human being? Again, can't control when my hair falls out. I'm not the one who decides the number of my days. What could be so special about me that you'd give a rip about me? I walk by a million ants every day, God. I'm not even considering what they think. Unless they're in my house, then I'm going to kill them. I don't care what they think. 
And he says, there's nothing special about me. But there's something very special about a God who would care about someone like me. Psalmist isn't expressing, he's not expressing doubt that God cares about him. He's actually saying that God does care about him. A small, puny, humble, lowly thing, and it just amazes him. Listen, he's probably not getting to this all with quick, snippy little prayers throughout the day, which do those. Do those. But he's probably not getting here with those. And this brings him wonder. Beholding the majesty, the limitlessness, just the power of God. It brings him wonder, awe, and gratitude, and it makes him feel small, not in a way that destroys him. It, It diminishes him in a way that makes him feel great. It's even the sort of joy that can bring him peace and courage in the midst of his enemies, in the middle of his suffering. It's the majesty of God experienced by the meek, which brings joy even when surrounded. It happens when a person can just stop their act, stop and Selah. And now when you see this, you're able to say, God, I am so very small, but you are so very big. Wow. I always want to be big. I always want to be great. I want to be mighty. I want to be powerful. I want to be awesome. I don't need to be because like you're here and you're with me. I'm in the midst of yours. I don't need any of my own. It's the person who can say, you know just how low I am, God. You know just how weak I am. You, just, you know just how much need I have, how desperate I am, how, how many times I've failed. And here I am once again in failure. You know all of that. And you still, you still want me. You who are the greatest. It's in this place that a person, a person like this, a person who is embracing their meekness in the face of the God's majesty, it's a person like this that can make it turn like you see here in verses four through five. Read verse four through five with me. I'm sorry, from verse four into five. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. The joy that the psalmist is experienced, the joy that that the psalmist is is receiving, this joy comes to those who embrace God's majesty in their meekness. This is not for those Christians who go, my God is great, I'm great like him, we're on the same team, let's go do the thing, God. Not even for the Christian who goes, I'm the water boy, or I'm second string, Jesus is on the field, he's doing the thing, but he'll call me in not, like, to put ourselves in the position, not of the person even in the stands, but the person at home who doesn't have the money to buy the tickets to get into the stadium, right? He's on the field. I got nothing to do with this, but he brings me into his glory. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody, but the somebody is somebody, and he wants me. He includes me. He loves me. He cares about me. This, this verse, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. It, it's quoted in... Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, his greatness, that he's above the angels, that he's the son of God, that he is God. And not even the angels of heaven can hold a candle to him. But then in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, 
namely Jesus, we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everything, for everyone. This, this, um, this a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, that's something that none of us can claim. We can't say that about ourselves. We can't apply that to that to ourselves. We can't read Psalm 8 and say that. But God, you've made me a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned me with glory and honor. I can't say that. It's not true about me. This is where we go back to the what? The blue reading and red reading. Both of them help us orient ourselves and God in our proper places in the Psalms. Reading this blue through a blue lens, we can't even think that we have a part to play with heavenly beings. We can't even think that God would crown us with anything close to dignity or glory or honor. But the red reading tells us through the gospel red lens that says, but we're joined with Jesus in that sacrifice. He tasted death for me. And now I'm joined with him. And he is above even the angels. Though in his earthly ministry, apparently, he seemed to be and was made in appearance to be a little lower than the angels. And he is crowned with glory and honor and majesty. Well, then, yes, the red reading is for us because it's Jesus's first and foremost and always. And he worthies us to join him in it. Does God care for me? I don't deserve his care. Who am I? What am I that he would even listen to me? The creator of the universe, keeping all of the sub, 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 subatomic particles of the universe, my body, your body, the chairs you're sitting in, he's keeping those spinning in their proper orientation. So stuff remains stuff, and energy does what it's supposed to do, and he's doing that on the microscopic and the severely macroscopic scale. And when I have need no matter how unbelievably small or pathetic it is, his ear is bent. And he doesn't even have to put anything else on pause. He doesn't have to put me on pause. He doesn't have to say la for me. And he's listening. And he doesn't just hear. He cares. You know how I know? It's because of what Hebrews said about this one. He suffered my death so that by his grace I could have his life. I was his enemy, and instead of crushing me as I deserve, he calls me friend, and he welcomes me. Now, now, how majestic is his name? Now, how great is his name? Do you know how Jesus makes this work? Do you know how Jesus mightily accomplishes this glorious thing for me? The majestic one became meek. He became meek so that you would have life. He who has limitless power and authority, all majesty, he, he makes himself meek. The, the king of the universe arrives as the baby of an impoverished carpenter and a scandalized teenage girl. Her reputation is destroyed. He, the king of glory and might, he enters his own capital city occupied by his enemies, and he doesn't enter in on a war horse, but he enters on a humble donkey like some podunk farmer, some nobody. It's not even his own donkey. He had to borrow it. The king of victory defeats Satan and all of his enemies, not by rocking the world, 
putting them in their place, giving them a piece of his mind. No, he, he does it by dying in humiliation at their hands. And that's how he kills them. That's how he overcomes them. The Lion of Judah does his work of might by becoming the Lamb of God. So we take you to verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. I want, we need to let the Bible read the Bible so even the psalmist isn't coming up with this stuff right there by himself. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in the, in the Psalms that are said for the first time in the Bible in the Psalms. This is not one of those times. He's quoting Genesis chapter 1. When God creates man and woman, when he creates humanity, he gives humanity a mission, a purpose. He goes, here, you're my chief creative persons. I've created you to bear my image. Nothing and no one else has my image, not even the angels. You are my representatives on this planet, in this universe. I'm, I'm giving you power and I'm giving you authority and I'm, all the stuff you see this, that's mine, but I made it for you like a father who constructs a playground for his kids. This is mine. I give it to you. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to steward it. I want you to build on it. I want you to modify on it. I want you to be creative, think of stuff, but I want you to rule over it. Hold dominion over all these things. They belong to you, and I want you to do it the way I do it. Show all of the creation that I've given you what a good God I am by being my representative. It's all yours. That's Genesis chapter 1. It's what God designed and ordained originally for human beings. We're to hold dominion and rule the universe as his representatives. We were meant to be majestic and mighty like him. And, and yet we, we fell into sin. Now I want you to know something. Our fall into sin, Genesis chapter 3, us becoming sinful and rejecting God, our fall into sin didn't change God's design. His design doesn't change. We're still meant to. What sin does is it cripples us and it poisons us and makes us ineffective. It causes us to wield the dominion over the world he's given us in opposite directions according to what his purposes are. We use our might and power for our own glory and not for God, for our own enjoyment of ourselves and these things rather than the one who gave all these things to us. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who can say, you've given him, you've given me, human, you've given me dominion, all this authority, all this power, you've put all things under my feet. He even says so again in the gospels. He can say that, I can't. Well, you've given it to me, but I'm not doing it, not the way you want me to. That red reading in the gospel reading, I'm redeemed, I'm with Jesus, and now my, my exercise of any authority, of any of any power in this life, joined with Jesus, I'm now aligned back to his purposes. I can actually walk in his design. But here, all the majesty and might that we were meant for, which we can't lay hold of, it becomes the inheritance that we tossed away, put back in our hands. Because of the gospel, like Esau, who sells his inheritance, his birthright in the Old Testament, for, a, for, for some chili mac, 
right? He tosses inheritance away. That's what we've done. It's placed back in our hands. It's given back to us. Not, and we don't get it by becoming mighty the way the world sees it, by being awesome so God will go, they are, actually look like pretty good. Uh, spirit, Jesus, go get them on our team. Put a number on their chest. Get them in here. And it's not done by being moral. It's not, we're not going to get our inheritance by being moral and religious and obeying the law. It's not going to work either. We get the inheritance. We get redeemed. We get put back into this design to walk in power that's given to us and not our own. But by, we do this by becoming meek in the way that Jesus is and was. Final big idea, and then we'll get into some, what do we, how do we, how do we, what do we do with this? The praise of Jesus works the might of his majesty through the meek. It's the praise of Jesus which works the might of his majesty through the meek. It's not you becoming more awesome. It's not you becoming cooler or wealthier or better looking. It's not through you showing yourself to be a far smarter incapable theologian or teacher or servant. It's by walking the lower road which Jesus takes and leads you on rather than going the higher road yourself. It's by putting yourself last like Jesus. Because those who go up the high road looking for the first position, they're the ones who made last. It ends this psalm with verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That that's his praise, and that's how, that's how he's going to enter in to his life again outside of this psalm, outside of the Selah. This is what he's walking. This is the sword that he's putting in his, in his belt to go back out and face the enemies, to face his own sin and shame, to face the sin of others on him, to face the difficulty and sufferings of a, of, of a terrible and broken world. It's not the closing of his prayer. It's not just amen because that means goodbye, Jesus. See you later. It, it's, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what I'm carrying with me when I go back out into the world to face its power. And a meek person with that in their hand, with that in their head and heart, with that coming off their lips, now God works his might. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he says a bunch of things like this. He says, in my weakness, God's shown to be strong. He's suffering from something terrible, and he's asked God time and time again to take it from me. And God goes, no, 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 I've shown you a lot of amazing stuff that I haven't shown anyone else. I'm, I'm worried. I love you. I, I don't want you to become prideful. So I'm, I'm going to humble you. I'm going to make you meek and show you that regardless of what I do through you or let you see you're still you, and I love you all the same there. You don't, I don't want you to be counting on that. I want you to be counting on me. Don't worry. You being weaker, Paul, shows just how strong I am. He says, I can do well. I can follow God in faith. I can obey him, whether I have a lot or whether I have very, very little. This is meekness. He says, all the great work that I have done, all the work that I can do. He says, it's garbage compared to what Jesus Christ and his majestic might 
could do through a broken, crumbly little clay vessel like me. It's garbage. In fact, he actually uses the Greek word scubula. You can just Google that, scubula, all right? S-K-U-B-B-A-L-A, scubula. Just Google that. That's what he means when he looks at all the stuff that he can do, his power, his might. There's a, there's a song I, 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 I can't really like speak to like the trust, trustworthiness or, 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 or anything about the group that wrote this song, this worship song. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, but th- there's a song that I love. I really love. It, it's useful to me in the same way that Psalm 8. I wouldn't replace Psalm 8 with this song. I would say this is ancillary, supplementary worship music that is, is helpful me, with me walking Psalm chapter 8 out. The song is called, this is, I think it's called, This is How I Fight My Battles, and it's repeated over and over again a lot, all right? Some of you are like, I don't like so It's not good worship songs if you repeat phrases over and over and again. You're going to not like heaven's worship like when you get there because we're going to repeat stuff over and over again, okay? Not the same thing, but we're going to repeat a lot of stuff. But this is how I fight my battles. The, the overarching idea of this song is that my weapon against temptation and sin and shame and the world and Satan and everything else that would try to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my weapon is seeing the majesty of God and praying and singing his majesty over me who am very small. In the presence of my enemies, you set a table for me and we sit down and eat because you ain't scared of them. They'll murder me, but they're they're being held at bay because you're here with me. They can't touch me because of you. This is how I fight my battles. Not by fighting fire with fire, not by fighting back, not giving them a piece of my, their, my mind, not by setting them straight. Man, our, our enemies under Christ, our enemies are overcome not by killing them, but by dying for them in meekness, restraining my earthly puny vengeful wrath and disappointment and anger by restraining and leaning on God's righteous power. And now I'm turned from weak into meek because the power of God, the might of God is his majesty on my lips. What do we do with this? What do we take this? He's got three things for you. Number one, in gospel-centered meekness, criticism turns to compassion just kind of transition from that last thought into this one. The godly meek see the true problems of themselves and they see God's grace on them as meek people. And, and now then, the godly meek, they see the true problems of others and they compassionately bring God's grace to them too. This is what my doctor gave me to rescue me from the poison of my sin and failure. And because I love you, I, I see that you're dying from the same thing I, I've been dying from here. I, this is a medication. I'm a, I don't have to consult my doctor. I can just give it to you. But if you can't accept the humble meekness that God wants you to accept, then you're going to criticize and you're going to disempower other people in order to relieve your own sense of dissatisfaction with your not awesomeness, to cover up for, for your own embarrassment, for your own failing. No one's going up, including me. Well, then, I got to take them down so I don't feel bad about my position. You remain in the spirit of fear, which is slavery, spending most of your bandwidth 
on gossip, gossip and criticism and internet warrioring, and you won't experience the peace and the joy of meekness in God's majesty. And none of your enemies will see Jesus' compassion through you. You won't be exercising any of the might that you were designed for. Number two, meekness isn't what disqualifies you for God's work. It's the very thing that shows you're qualified. This is for you, RCC. This is for me. But this is for, for many, many, many of you. You can't stiff arm obedience to Jesus because you're not good enough. You don't get to disqualify yourself because you've been too sinful or because you're too insignificant or because you don't know enough Bible and haven't been trained in theology and not, I'm not good at talking. I'm not so good at this. I'm not like Pastor Matt. I'm not like Stuart. I'm not like Christian. I'm not like Kimberly. I'm not like Kate. I'm not like Erica. They can do it. I'll just, man, I'll... All this obedience, uh, reaching out and ministering to other people, taking responsibility for other people in the church and loving them and reaching out to them and praying for them, reaching out to lost people and telling them the story that once I was blind, but didn't, I met Jesus and now I see and he's great and he loves me. He loves you too. I just, let me tell you my story of the gospel on me. Can I, can I, can I invite you to church? You get to stiff arm any of that because you don't think you're good at something. I'm too meek, I'm too small. You just become a toddler who moments ago you were running through your life like Disney World and now mom and dad say, all right, time to get up and move and go. And now all of a sudden my legs don't work. And I'm saying that not harshly to you, to hurt you. I'm saying, I just, we just need to see our silly, foolish, insensible games that we try to play with God and ourselves with one another the very limitations that you have that think that's what qualifies you to disqualify yourself from obeying the Lord and serving your church, serving others, reaching out to lost people, having conversations, trying to do something. We just need to see how silly it is. And God sees right through it. We need to as well. It's our meekness that qualifies us because it's his might and majesty doing the heavy lifting. Number three, we abide in meekness with Jesus, who is majestic. We, we need to return every day. That word abide, that means to live, to dwell near. Been using that word a lot lately. In the olden days, didn't have plumbing. So you find a fresh water source, you dig a well over that water source. You, you dig a well, and that's where I live now. I'm not going to wander far off because... I don't know where any other life-giving water is. This is my water, and so this is my life, and this is where I plant my life. I'm, I'm going to dwell here. Every day we need to abide in our meekness with Jesus, who is majestic, finding our source of living water, finding our source of might and worthiness from him. We've got to do that every day. How, how might you do that? How should you do it? One is daily and continuous confession. Daily and continuous confession. Because if I don't see my meekness, then I won't see his majesty. If I don't express and face my sin, my needs, my desperation, my weakness, my limitation to the one who 
is none of those things, but is all authority and power and might, then I'm going to be tempted that it's expected of me that I'd be a little bit better today than I, than I am. And he's probably a little disappointed in me that I'm on his team. Or I'll think that I'm better than I am. And he owes me something. Daily and continuous going, well of life, I am thirsty. And no matter how much spit I swallow, I'm not generating any more water. I need life, so I need you. I'm going to stick with you. I need you. I can't do what you do. I can't bring what you bring. And I need you. It means embracing this meekness. It puts us in a place to experience his majesty. Where can we see his majesty? Two things. One, in his word. He wrote a book. He wrote a book. Can I just disabuse us of the notion that this is full of stories? This is a narrative. This is full of narrative. It happened. I'm not going to blow the whistle like a ref if I ever hear any of you go, my favorite Bible character is Moses. I'm not going to blow the whistle on you and like Jesus juke you, but I just want to make sure right now we're just setting this record straight. Moses isn't like a character. He's a person, a real man, born, lived, died. Things in here happened. True. And so when Psalm chapter 103 says that God has made his ways known to Moses, his acts to his people, Israel, you can go and find the testimony from real life in history time and time and time and time and time again of God doing miraculous and wonderful things and invisible, boring things that no one saw uh, except for us who now have it written down. There are people in here who lived this, who didn't see it, but God was doing it. So we have a testimony of both overt and covert majesty and might from God's hand. We have it in his word, and then we should have it in his work. We should be able to hold his, behold his majesty in his work. And once again, Psalm 103 is, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. And forget not all of his goodness, his gifts, his benefits, who, who, who heals my sickness, who redeems my life from the pit, who, who, who crowns me with steadfast love and righteousness, who, who's, who gives me and satisfies me with good things. What prayers has God answered for you? Every week, my, my community group leader, I have a community group leader, and I submit to him. His name is Stuart. Every week he asks one of the most awkward questions. And our group is getting a little less awkward. But every week he goes, all right, well, what's God done in your life? Do you know, do you know why Stuart's doing that? He might not even know why. Actually, I know. Because someone did that to him years ago. And he said, that's good. That's good. That's good for me. I need, what has God done in my life this week? Right? That's good. But do you know what's happening underneath that question? It's drawing us to look and search for the majesty and might of God in our lives. Things he is doing, how he cares for us, who he ought not to give any care to at all. And we may very well be missing it and not attributing the glory and enjoying his glory in the way we ought to. And we're missing out on joy because there's no selah, there's no pause, there's no stop. What prayers has God answered for you? And if you don't know that, that's, that may be because of one or two things. Perhaps you're not praying. 
Perhaps there is no Selah. Perhaps there is no meekness and you're not going to the Lord in your desperation for your need for him to come through. Or perhaps you are praying. You're just moving too fast. Let me urge you. This is not a law. This is not a universal law, right? The Bible doesn't say write down your prayers. But this may, it might be wisdom for some of us. I would urge you that what you're praying, get something. Your phone, a journal, a book, a list somewhere. Something you don't lose. And as you commit to daily, Selah, you, you pray. You go, here's what I'm praying. Here's what I'm praying. And then when God comes through, when he closes an issue, whether it turns out the way you want it or not, when he closes an issue, when he responds to a prayer, cross it out and write down what he did. Write down what he did, and you'll have a record, not only in here, but of your own life, corresponding to what you see in here, of how God is at work caring for you, working his might in your life. And then share it with others. What's God doing in my life? Hey, I want to tell you, I prayed this. Can I tell you what God, he, I've been doing this for months. Like my wife just like wiped me out last week out of the blue with something she'd been praying over. And like she came in and goes, here's what I've been praying blah, blah, blah. And I was able to show her a text message. And she's like, what? I'm like, I know what? We're in my wood shop just like losing. What? It was great. Do you, know, do you know how I felt? How she felt? We were like, she was crying and I'm like kind of crying too, right? But I'm <clears throat> wood shop. All right, it's all, right? But it was amazing. We felt great. Not because we were awesome because we had nothing to do with the answer that God had given in the prayer. But he had done some, something and we were the audience. We got to see it and we're like, yes, and it feels awesome. And do you know what it does for us? It builds more and more faith and more and more motivation to what? To pray and ask him to keep doing it. And now I get to share it with you. I can't go on all the specifics, but I can tell you, yeah, it happened. Like, it's beautiful. God shows his majesty and he works his might through those who are meek. It's our gospel trait. We want to know how we are to be. If we are Christians, then what's going to mark us? Then we're people who are meek. We're meek. The culture of our church needs to be a gospel culture, which is a culture of meekness. Not weakness, meekness. Humble people who trust in and follow a mighty and majestic God. With that said, I want to bring us into our time of communion then to celebrate the majesty of a God who would shroud himself, conceal himself in humility and work mysterious might. The meekness of God to restrain and withhold his righteous justice from those who deserve it, us and to lay it upon himself on his son and grant mercy to us that we could be meek and experience his might, see his majesty in the happiest of ways, the most liberating of ways, the most empowering of ways. We do that in communion. Up on these tables and on the little platforms in the back, we have our communion elements, the bread and the juice. That, that, that little bread, that little wafer represents the body of Jesus Christ, just like we have a body and he is undeserving, but we are very deserving of the wrath of God, the anger and judgment of God to fall on us and break us apart. And he stood in that way and he took the wrath for us. He was crushed on our behalf. And that, that juice that represents the blood of Jesus and washes us clean, it does delete from our account 
the penalty and the debt of sin, the legitimate ruling of condemnation on us, and then all of a sudden in blood, it's transferred to Jesus' record, to his account. And now we, we now have no sin upon us in God's eyes. We have no shame, no reason for shame or guilt before him or for one another. And we're clean because of that blood. That's a mighty God. That's a majestic God. And, and it's the people who receive this in meekness and humility and gladness, knowing just who we are and how great he is. Those are the people who receive this. And wow. For regular common bread and juice, there's a miracle occurring right there. So let me, in a second, I'm going to pray for us. If you're a member of our church here in the room, you can give back there at our giving box. We give because God gave first. You can, I'm going to pray. You can take communion, you, and you can write your tithe check, or you can pull your phone out, especially for those of you who are at home or online watching you can get on our website or uh, get in your app, and, and, and you can give then as, a, as an act of worship to our Lord. And then we're going to continue singing and worshiping, fighting our battles with, with the praise of our majestic God on our lips. And that's, that's where his might starts to really play out. Let me pray for us. But I do ask, so I do every week, getting ready for a sermon, not asking for, for you to make it clear that there's a powerful preacher or a powerful sermon at work, but a powerful God. And I ask for the miracle of amazement, of gratitude. I ask that you work the miracle of giving hope in the liberated spirit and courage and peace to those who have heard your word today that we would be quite, quite happy knowing just how meek we are standing in the presence of the majestic and mighty God of the universe who loves us. I pray that you would move us to act and live in your power, in your might, not our own. Pray this for the glory in the name of Jesus and our good and joy. Amen. I love you guys. Thanks.